Welcome to Sound of Hockey, episode 100. Sound of Hockey episode 100. We're calling it the William Carlson episode. Why are we calling it that, John? I know he doesn't wear number 100. No, he doesn't, but he actually has 100 career regular season goals. So that's what we decided on. (laughs) Okay. And I think that might be the angle that we take moving forward now because obviously we can't do jersey numbers anymore to name our episodes. So instead, we're going to come up with some sort of random obscure stat. Well, John's going to come up with it. John's going to pull some data for us. I'm not going to pull any data or anything like that. But. Uh, anyway, episode 100 feels like a big milestone for us, that's for sure. Thank you to all of you who have been with us since the beginning, and you've stuck with it and um, listened to us grow and change and evolve over time, and it's it's been a lot of fun, and we're excited to do a lot more of these episodes for you. Uh, but I am Darren Brown, at Darren Fun Brown, joined as always by Andy Ide. Hello, How's Andy. How's it going? I'm at Andy Ide on the Twitter. And John Barr. Hello, John. Hello, everybody. I'm NHL2Seattle on the Twitter. And we are coming to you from Seattle. We do have another big guest this week, a Seattle Kraken-related guest. And maybe it's one that you aren't super familiar with, but Lance Lopes, uh, he actually is the general counsel for the Seattle Kraken. And what makes him especially notable is that he was technically the very original employee for the Seattle Kraken. So um, I think you're going to learn a lot from that interview. He shares some stories that I don't think are all that widely known uh, about the process of getting Climate Pledge Arena built and getting the Northgate project completed and all that stuff. Uh, and so he's got some really cool behind the scenes um, stories that I think you'll appreciate. We have a new review. It's a five-star review from Marshall XG. It says, go Kraken. And then the body of the review says, stupendous. So <laughs> that's somebody who has Man. been listening to the podcast. Uh, well done, Marshall I think XG. Darren like, talked up the one word or short reviews last week. I guess what's happening uh, here. Maybe. The call to action has yeah. been... Done. But Marshall, I mean, he's, he's speaking the truth there, right? I mean, it is. True. It I'm, is not arguing, I'm not arguing so. with what he said. <laughs> yeah. We should have a little bit of an update from the Seattle Kraken here. What's the latest news on the Kraken front, John? So uh, the big news that got a lot of fans talking was that the long-awaited season ticket holders or deposit holders will be able to pick their tickets um, ah. and select their seats. So a couple items of note, Uh, Jeff Baker had an article in the Times last week. It said there's going to be about uh, almost 10,000 tickets that will be half game seat plan. So that that I love because that's a good way to get more people in the building. Obviously, you double the the amount of potentially double the amount of people that that um, have season tickets. So that is really cool. And that get in the building. So when you say half game, does that mean that like one fan sits in a seat? until halfway through the game and then somebody else comes and replaces them. Ten minutes yeah. in the second period, you gotta go. Yeah. Like how like how squirts and mini mites will like swap goalies yes, exactly. at exactly the halfway point. Yeah, that or just split a season in half. Uh because oh. yeah. I believe it's it's uh, one of the um, biggest allocations of partial season ticket plans in the NHL. Hmm. But I've also heard that a lot of teams are going this route for anybody that's got a wait list. Instead of just reselling a full season ticket, they just um, split that package. So it's in line with what's going on in the NHL right now, but it's also a great way because there's so much demand in Seattle to get more people in the stands um, and, and more people experience hockey, which has always been my concern if with 
with so much demand, it's going to, for one, it's going to, it could potentially price people out. Speaking of uh, the price, the tickets will range between $50 and $170 for these uh, season ticket plans. They're going to start making appointments this week and they will begin August 24th. So if you're a very low number on the prioritization, you'll get an appointment and then um, be able to select your seats. There is some information up on the on their website right now, the Seattle Kraken website, that you can preview where the seats are and the price points and kind of narrow it down, especially if you've got multiple people in your group. But um, keep in mind, there's allegedly 30,000 people on the depositor list mm-hmm. and then another 50,000 people on the wait list. Is that good? Yeah, that sounds good, but also kind of creates a problem. And I know a lot of people have asked me about if they're, or I've seen a lot of people ask if there's they can sell on a secondary market. Seattle Kraken did confirm that that will be a possibility, but um, they don't want broker behavior. So that means like they, they didn't state an actual number, but like selling like more than half your seats might be an example of broker behavior. So they obviously want to sell them to the people that are going to use them. Um, and so that's, that's one thing to keep an eye on. But uh, if you haven't been contacted, you might soon because um, they're going to kind of go through these two week waves until they're kind of all sold out. So very cool. And I understand there might be an update from our Northgate correspondent. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, wait, so. wait, 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 wait. I get to do that setup. Oh, I believe yeah, we have sorry. a Northgate update from our Northgate correspondent, Andy Eyed. Andy? <laughs> uh, yes, there is a Northgate uh, update. Uh, I was invited on Monday to go to the Northgate facility and actually Ooh, get past invited. the fence. Mm-hmm. Um, and for their uh-huh. uh, what they call their topping ceremony, they were putting the last beam into the structural uh, building. So they, they, they put their last beam in and they got everyone to sign it. They had a little ceremony. Then they lifted the beam up put it back down and secured it there and everybody cheered and pretty cool. Uh, I saw the video that the, the, the crane operator did a little twirl with the beam. Yes. At the top too. I, th- I think that there was, was a purpose for that. I, I quite don't know stylish. what it was. It was pretty cool. It was a small group. It was mostly just the workers there, the BN, the BN builders that were building that part of it. Um, but before they did that, well, you know, Todd Lightwicky was there. He spoke to the group, uh, but we were standing in what would be one of the rinks, and you could kind of see the three rinks. They're they're all kind of set up. They, they don't have ice or boards or glass, but you can see where they're going to be, where where they're each going to be housed. Uh, so it's kind of cool to stand there and think like you know, and, and next time this this time next year, that's going to be a sheet of ice that you're going to be standing on. So uh, that thing's moving forward pretty good. Uh, uh, they're they're expecting it to be ready. The first phase in June, the first phase will be the team rink and their facilities, and then the rest of it by September is when it should open. So June being that critical date that we've talked about for the first uh, prospect camp, right? Exactly, yep. Uh, And we have some content to discuss on NHL2Seattle.com. What's the latest, gents? Well, I'll have a story up about the the beam and a photo gallery. (laughs) So you'll see and, that. Brian well, and you've us. also been you've also been covering the playoffs, um, mm-hmm. kind of the local players, and so uh, Andy, you know, is tracking all that. Carter Hart and Matthew Barzal, who had good weeks. Um, I also put some information on the makeup of rosters, as far as like uh, how these these rosters were built, the nationalities of the rosters, and then uh, also the ages of them. And do you guys know who the youngest? team in the bubble is right now hmm. i believe i do do you want me to answer yes i'm pretty sure it's columbus it is it is ah. columbus yeah so uh what's pretty crazy considering they allegedly traded you know their future away remember when they traded for all those guys last year uh Dezingle and deshane yeah so uh they're still pretty well stocked Yep, and I'm planning a much heavier, you know, intense story about what have been... Hard hitting. Yep. Uh, the most annoying uh, commercials that have been playing in the in the playoffs. So 
Um, look for that a little bit later this week. Uh, speaking of which, I was curious what your guys' most annoying commercial is at this point. Oh, man. Subway, I, to for me, sure. To me, it's the, to me, it's the Paul Miss the Net commercial. Okay. I can't stand mm-hmm. it. I'm over it. It was amusing one time. And now the what? What commercial? It's for the Amsterdam vodka with, with Whitney and oh, Paul Miss the Net. Paul Miss the Net. He's oh. like, oh, is it, is it Paul Miss the Net? <laughs> man, I still like that. It's <laughs> awful. John? Uh, definitely the Subway. Mm. The, the anytime I see the piano player playing the five dollar, <laughs> you mean Charlie Puth? Yeah, Charlie Puth. Is he a real person? He like, is. Got yeah, a name? A, really? I just thought it was a dude. Pretty well known recording artist, actually. You would definitely know a few of his songs. Um, but I'm yeah. not convinced he actually works at Subway. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, and my mine that's really gotten under my skin is the Adina Menzel oh, that was bad commercial. Too. Yeah. About the, taxidermy oh yeah man it's pretty it bad is, it is rough and kind of similar to andy's thoughts on the paul miss the net commercial like i actually think that initially if you saw it like once or twice it was like all right that's that's kind of cute right mm-hmm. like she's a, a well-known singer uh but then i don't know like it just once you've heard it like three times it starts to get under your skin and then now that i've heard it like 150 times i'm like oh i hate this so much as soon as i see her <laughs> pop up i hit the mute button right away so um, okay, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the bubble, though. So first, I think, I don't know if you would say it's the biggest news, but to me, I think it was the biggest news from this past week was the decision by Tuka Rask to opt out of playing the rest of the playoffs and kind of the weird like backlash that came afterwards. Um, I kind of get it because, A, Boston fans are kind of the worst, um, and there's a lot of people that think Tuka Rask is for some reason, not a good goalie, even though he's like a Vezina candidate almost every year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never understood their disdain for him. The one thing that kind of irked me about this, and, and I'm, I'm totally for the players having the option to say, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. This isn't right. Blah, blah, blah. And being able to go home and have everybody respect that decision, because this is a big sacrifice. And we knew this from the beginning, right? That like not everyone would want to do it. Uh, he gave it a try. It didn't work out. He left. So of course, that, I think that decision should be supported. My issue was the comments beforehand where he he did his press conference and they kind of asked him like, oh, well, what, you know, what's your thoughts on, on the atmosphere in there tonight? He's like, well, it's not a playoff atmosphere. Just first of all, like it feels like an exhibition. Uh, he said something like, I don't really care about the outcome. Um, and if you're like a teammate, you know, how do you like you're in there battling with the guy, even if there's no fans in the stands. And the thing that I think bothered me about it is that people have worked really hard to put this on. And I personally like, you know, as a fan, I'm invested in it and I'm still excited about it. So like if you as one of the participants come out and say that it's not as good as real hockey, to me, it's kind of a kick in the teeth as a fan, you know, so I think that the silver lining of those comments is that that probably sparked the conversation with his mm-hmm. management to get him to say, I, I shouldn't be here. But um, I just, I thought that those comments were really unnecessary. Like if you want to go home, then go home, you know, and yeah. just deal with it. But I, I didn't think that those were necessary things to say. For me, those comments uh, when, when the next day, I think it was like the next day, right? Or the day after where he, he announced he was leaving. Uh, yeah. To me, that all made sense. And I'm like, okay, well, that makes, it makes me understand those comments a little bit more. His head wasn't in it. Heart wasn't in it, um, and so it made a lot more sense why he wanted to, to go home. But yeah, I don't, as me point. as a fan, it feels like the playoffs to me, even without the fans. But you know, obviously, yeah. I'm not on the ice. But you know, just the games have been good for the most part. They're, they've been intense. There have been close games. There have been you know comebacks. There's been a lot of crazy things, and it's all been pretty entertaining to me. 
after uh, the Tuka Rask presser, which is a post-game presser, um, the last one he played, Marshawn was also asked about what Rask had said because Marshawn came up and did uh, address the press shortly after. And Marshawn was like, no, it's the playoffs. We feel it. Like, And he didn't have the full context of Tuka's remarks, but he's like, oh, he probably just meant the seeding, the round-robin yeah. games. And that clearly wasn't the case. So, like, the writing was on the wall, right, that he that his heart wasn't in it. And that's totally fine. The one thing that is, is always weird to me is I see a lot of people talking about um, all the people that are negatively talking about Tuca leaving. But I literally did not see any of the remarks being negative at Tuca. Like, I swear I saw 20 people kind of commenting or uh, implying that people are against him. But I didn't see it. I didn't. But. Keep in mind, I don't go looking for it too. If yeah, if you ever dig into any of the replies, right, you you see, <laughs> you see but, some. Stuff but like, I mean, like this is the internet, right? You're not going to get everybody on the same page, like yeah. And there's going to be people that are just douchebags, right? So just to right. be douchebags, yeah. Speaking of Boston, and speaking of douchebags, <laughs> <laughs> excellent segue. <laughs> Jack Edwards uh, was a douchebag again this week. So uh. yeah, so. Andrei Svechnikov got injured in one of these games between Boston and Carolina, um, and it looked really ugly, right? Because Zdeno Chera essentially like leaned on him, and he's gigantic, and Svechnikov basically just like collapsed under him, and it looked like his leg folded into about six different directions. <laughs> but Jack Edwards wrote a tweet after the game and said, what NBC hasn't shown yet regarding the unfortunate injury to Svechnikov, the Carolina wing playing hobby horse riding Chera on the back apron of the goal. You poke the bear, you take your chances. No one wanted to see Svechnikov get hurt, but he bit off more than he could chew. It's almost like you get what you deserve, right? Yep, and and to (laughs) make it worse, it wasn't even Svechnikov who was tangled up with the star behind the net. It was Ajo, so it it gets even worse. But we all know Jack Edwards is a gigantic homer, but this was a pretty pretty terrible take, a terrible tweet. Well, and people might not know he's he's homer, right, for listeners. He's like the most obnoxious homer you've ever listened to, ever. And like your your most annoying friend who's got his favorite team that he can't stop talking about how great they are. That's Jack no Edwards. Wrong. Yeah, that's no Jack wrong. Edwards. But he's a professional. Like keep yeah. in mind, he's a professional. And people jumped on him for that. A lot of people like in players, the industry, like yeah. current and ex players, were all over him. Yeah, it seems like he gets away with a lot of this stuff. Uh, and so I don't expect anything to happen. Technically, it wasn't that uh, I egregious. Know. Yeah, not nothing that's get him fired, but it's just no. kind of poor taste for sure. Yeah, a little yeah. classless. Uh, and by the way, you know who was talking negatively about Tuka Rask uh, and his decision was Mike Milbury, yep. who we're not going to talk about him now, but he's had an interesting week. Uh, and we will discuss him at the end of the show, I am confident. But, okay, a couple other notes. So we had Claude Julien le- leaving because of chest pains. That was kind of scary. He was hospitalized briefly and then went back to uh, he got Montreal. A stint. So- he got a stint in it. Yeah, he actually yeah. had a procedure, yeah. Kirk Muller took over as the sort of as the interim coach there. Uh, Marc-Andre Fleury had his 80th postseason win, which I guess that's a, kind of a big deal. He's been uh, sharing time in net with Robin Leonard there. Uh, and then I thought this was interesting that Jake Allen has kind of taken over the reins for the St. Louis Blues. It feels a little bit like Pittsburgh 2.0, right? With Marc-Andre Fleury winning the cup and then Matt Murray, you know, taking over his position the next time around. It feels kind of akin to that because obviously you had Bennington who came out of nowhere and won the cup for the Blues last year. And then um, he's faltered a little bit here early on. And so in comes Jake Allen, who has had some postseason success in the past. So um, we'll see what happens there. It, the, the parallel might exist if Jake Allen wins the next 14 games. Right. <laughs> right. We'll see. 
That's all I'm saying is that it could be akin to that if, you know, the Blues could go be. on a run okay. and end up winning it. Well, he won the first one and has a lead in the second one, so he's on his way. And we want to talk about some individual performances. John, who has caught your eye so far in bubble hockey? You know, I, I haven't been paying too much attention to Calgary, at least in the play-in round, but uh, I started watching Calgary in the Dallas series, and Sam Bennett is having a pretty good playoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I'm kind of keying in on him is he could be a future Seattle Kraken because he's he should be exposed based on all the all the projections. And if the rosters stay relatively similar, uh, he will be exposed. But then also Pavelski in Game Four of Joe Pavelski, Joe Pavelski of that same same series uh, had a hat trick and also scored the the tying goal in the third with 12 seconds left that would send it into overtime and then they would eventually win in overtime. So, you know, he's come to play. Those are some big standouts for me. Andy? Uh, well, for me, obviously, I've been watching that St. Louis-Vancouver series a lot. And, uh, oh, here we Quinn go. Hughes. Kenusha. Kenusha coming. <laughs> Quinn Hughes for the for the Canucks, who we, who we talked about as a Calder uh, Trophy uh, candidate, has been pretty great. And yeah, he's tied, actually, an NHL record. He has points in six straight games and they're playing right now so we don't know if he'll break that record but he's tied it he's tied a record set by Al McGinnis in 1984 and then uh, also Zarly Zalapsky who did the same thing in 1989 so that's some pretty oh, yeah, good Zarley. company to be in totally yeah so he he <laughs> had the he had a great pass in their in their game two overtime winner up along with you know a bank pass to Bo Horvat who went in alone and scored uh, Horvat's also been really good uh, so that one I've been watching a lot. And then uh, I, I enjoyed seeing uh, Barzell's overtime winner for the Islanders to put the, the Islanders up surprisingly 3 nothing on the on the Capitals. And uh, I feel bad for a friend of the pod, Brendan Dillon, who was on the ice for that and <laughs> yeah, got lost yeah. him. But Dillon, Dillon they, they, it's interesting that they matched those two guys up a lot, or at least the Capitals did. He played over nine minutes against Barzell in that game, and which is the most of any defenseman against Barzell. And there were a couple times they were kind of chirping at each other and – they do work out in the summertime. They never played together in Seattle, but they they did they do work out in Vancouver in the summer. So pretty fun to watch that from two former Thunderbirds. So if the Islanders end up sweeping the Capitals, which this could end up aging very poorly uh, by the time this posts, which is yeah. unfortunately what happens when you do podcasts during playoffs. Uh, but man, what a job by Barry Trotz, right? If that oh, yeah. if that ends up being the case uh, against his former team to end up taking them out quickly but we'll see you know it may like i said it may age poorly so trots has done a phenomenal job there and that's all we have to say about that yeah and for me i wanted to mention that five overtime game i think it unfortunately happened like the night that we posted our last episode so it was a long time ago at this point but we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet jonas corpusalo that night had 85 saves for the columbus blue jackets which uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with making saves in a hockey game, but that is a lot of saves. Uh, I believe that was the NHL record for the most saves ever. Uh, yep. He beat, I think it was Kelly Rudy held the record previously. So uh, pretty incredible there uh, by Corpusalo. Of course, the reward for him was a loss because the Lightning yep. did end up winning the game. Um, but nonetheless, I, did you guys watch that whole game? By the way, I'd like, I like, oh yeah, I kept like kind of coming in and out. Like I went out for a run and came back and I was like, what the hell? It's still going. Like what, <laughs> what is going on here? And, uh, yeah, it was, it I was watched it from start incredible. to finish, which made for a long same, day. Same here. It was like, it was like a nine o'clock game, right? It's already nine in the morning. And the funny thing <laughs> is, and most people will know this, have been paying attention to the playoffs is that they had to reschedule a game cause they're, yep. you know, all playing in the same spot. Like, so one of the later games had to get postponed to the next the next morning. So yeah, it was 
game one for Carolina Boston had to go the next morning, and then that game went into a second overtime. So <laughs> it was pretty hilarious. Oh, I loved it. I loved <laughs> it. I loved it. Um, another big performance, Corey Crawford had 48 saves to force an extra game for uh, Vegas, although we'll see there. I mean, it feels like Vegas has that one pretty well under control. And Carter Hart, local guy, he had a shutout as well. So Youngest Flyer goaltender to get a shutout. Yeah, everyone's talking about, you know, the Flyers finally found their goalie, which uh, it's pretty mm-hmm. cool that he's somebody that a lot of us get to see, at least at least briefly for me. I saw him a little bit, you know, developing here in, in the Seattle area. So um, very cool stuff. We should now move on to our interview with the Seattle Kraken's very first employee, Mr. Lance Lopes. <laughs> Welcome on to Sound of Hockey, the executive vice president and general counsel to the Seattle Kraken and one of the original hires here in Seattle charged with getting Climate Change Arena built. Uh, he was previously the senior associate athletic director at University of Washington, executive vice president and general counsel for the Seattle Seahawks, and he's also worked for the Sounders, Green Bay Packers, and was on the original management team for StubHub. Uh, and believe it or not, he has two Super Bowl rings, and he is as John calls him, the pride of Winnemucca, Nevada. Welcome to Sound of Hockey, Lance Lopes, and thank you so much for joining us. You know, Darren, that may be the finest introduction I've ever heard right there when you uh, worked in Winnemucca. Yeah. I like that. So that's actually our first question is where the hell is Winnemucca, Nevada? Well, it's, uh, it's if you find the emptiest part of the United States, which is somewhere out in the middle of Nevada. And then make a right. It's a little town that's pretty much right out in the middle of that. Yeah. I, I like to say that, that Winnemucca, when I grew up, had about 5,000 people in it. And you had to drive 130 miles to get to the next bigger town. Wow. So um, isolated, to say the least. Yeah. So you get out of Winnemucca to go to 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 college you go to linfield in oregon and then eventually university of oregon for law school um and then do you go from there to green bay is that how it transpires for you no i uh i I became a lawyer uh worked in honolulu for a few years and then worked in seattle here for another few years before ultimately landing the the general counsel job in in green bay um so I, i spent about five years practicing law in honolulu and seattle before going to Green Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Green Bay is a pretty happening town. How long did you plan on staying there and how long did you actually stay there? Well, I, I promised my wife at the time that, that we would do it for two years because she was not sold on moving to the Midwest. She's a Seattle, <laughs> Seattle gal. And uh, I, I knew I knew I was sandbagging her a little bit at the time and, and two years turned into seven. Wow. And seven actually would have, would have been a bit longer, but uh, there was a regime change about that time. And uh, it was, you know, as happens in these, in these organizations, I think it was time for me to try to find something that was a better fit for me. So that's when I went to StubHub actually. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I spent seven years in Green Bay and really enjoyed it. The people back there are just absolutely wonderful. They are very, very nice people. Um, I think unless you've been to Green Bay, I think the like the general population of the United States does not understand how small it actually is because you imagine it being, you know, this great sports market. And it is like the people love the team and the whole state gets behind the Packers there. But I mean, it's it's really like a, a stadium that's just surrounded by like single story houses that people just don't grasp how yeah. small it is you know darren I, my best analogy that i like to give people i say it's like putting an nfl franchise in eugene oregon yeah um <laughs> or even salem 
Um, it's really kind of what it feels like, more like Salem, actually, if you, if you, you know, that, that really is what it feels like. And so eventually you make it back here to the, the Seattle for the Seahawks. Uh, how did that process happen? And, and uh, what did you enjoy about that experience? So a number of people, ironically, when I was back in Green Bay, um, you know, I was surrounded by a group of people that I'd worked with for seven or eight years, including Mike Holmgren and uh, Mike Reinfeldt and a whole bunch of people that I'd gotten very, very close to. Well, when Mike Holmgren was hired to become the coach of the Seahawks, he brought with him a rather sizable group of, of Packers uh, uh, football people. And I was the only one in the organization that was actually from Seattle, uh, that entire group. So they were all going back to where, where my wife and I were really, really ultimately wanting to get back to. The challenge was uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't an opening here in Seattle um, for what I did. There was a guy that was doing some of that work for Mr. Allen at the time. And so I really didn't have the opportunity to come back and do what I wanted to do at the time. So I stayed and, and actually took on an expanded role with the Packers and, and uh, for a period of time until they sort of reorganized their front office after all the Holmgren people left. So then I, I and like I mentioned, I went to StubHub, um, moved back to Seattle and actually went to work for StubHub. And, and then when the opportunity opened in, for the Seahawks, eventually it did. Um, they called immediately and said, hey, the, there's a spot now that, uh, that's ready for you. So I, I, in 1990, excuse me, in 2001, sorry, it was my years. In 2001, uh, I left StubHub to go back to work for the Seahawks. And so were you, were you still with the Seahawks when they won the Super Bowl? Is that your second Super Bowl ring? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was, well, I was with them when we went to the Super Bowl and lost. I've been unfortunately, I've been a part of two losses as well. I we lost the second Super Bowl in Green Bay to the Broncos, and then you know, obviously we lost to the the Steelers in 2005. And and then I was with the organization in 2014 when we won the Super Bowl, and uh, I left shortly after that. So, how much credit do you take for those victories? <laughs> absolutely none. <laughs> Um, you know, I actually, uh, the, uh, so I, I do take a little more, uh, pride in the second victory only because, uh, well, it's funny because so in the first victory, I was much closer to the football organization because I was actually in the contract, uh, I was signing players and managing salary cap work and stuff. So I really had a, what I call a fairly active role in the football organization in Green Bay. In Seattle, I, I really didn't. I, at that point, I moved on to much more of a business ops role, but I did have a, a, uh, uh, Todd Lywicki entrusted me to have a significant role in in helping with uh, reorganizing our front office uh, the last go round. So the Pete Carroll John Schneider um, team that that obviously has gone on to do such tremendous things here in Seattle uh, is really uh, a, two men that uh, that I had a you know a role in 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 helping recruit and identifying and getting here uh, with Todd and a few others. So. Uh, I, I do feel like I had a sense of, uh, of, you know, there was certainly some, a lot of gratification to watch that come to to uh, to what it has, and and I well, still to this day I'm a huge Seahawks fan and uh, great pride in what those guys have accomplished because I was there, you know, when we we first identified them and decided they might be the right team to make this happen. And so fast forwarding here to to 2016, uh, you get hired by OVG uh, as a as the director of special projects. So you're employee number one, right? You're the original Kraken. Can yeah, we call you absolutely. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Andy, you can call me anything you want. No, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny. I, I recall flying down to Los Angeles to meet with Tim. At the time, OVG was still a very small company. And I flew down to meet with Tim to talk to him about 
you know, this opportunity. This was in November of 2016. Tim and I met for about an hour and he laid out this vision for how he he thought this opportunity in Seattle might develop and, and you know, this arena and the city looking for somebody that could build it. And, you know, he sort of walked me through this this vision that he had. And, and um, you know, Tim, you guys obviously have met and talked to Tim and, and you know that the one thing that he doesn't lack is his vision and confidence to to make that vision happen. And after I got done listening to him for an hour, I, I came firing out of there saying, I'm in. Um, you know, I, I recognize that, that everybody else thinks this is a long shot. But I, I sort of left the office that day uh, 100% convicted that we were going to get this done and that I really wasn't taking a risk in signing up with them. And, and uh, I've never doubted it from that day. Uh, I, I do uh, I did save a newspaper headline. It wasn't a headline. It was one of those Seattle Times poll question deals that they used to run up in the head, or maybe they still do. And this was like in maybe I don't know, late January, early February of 2017. Uh, and it, it was basically, where do you think an arena will be built and w- who has the better chance of getting hockey and basketball? It's like a four part question. You know, it's like, I think it's like, you said Soto Arena, Key Arena, hockey and basketball. And hockey at Seattle Center got, I think, 7% of the vote <laughs> at that time. And uh, I was looking at that and I, I was sort of like, you know, I wish I could go put a bet on that in Vegas or do something like that because I just I just had a whole lot more confidence in the 7% vote um, that we were going to get this done. Uh, but at the time, that was certainly the, but I'll say the, uh, the community vibe, you know, in, in early part of 2017 was that people really didn't believe um, this was going to happen. And in fact, there's a guy in the call right now who I think might have been one of those, um, <laughs> as John is smiling right now. Yeah, I, you know, once I heard Tim's name, though, I was convinced it had a shot uh, above all else. I thought the footprint of Key Arena was going to be such a challenge because of, you know, I've been to T-Birds games in there and I just was like, how is this going to work? Um, but I was I was kind of supporting anything that was going to bring hockey here, right? And um, I I certainly did not share your confidence only because I've been through a lot before, right? Whether it be other plans in Soto, Bellevue, and even uh, Tuck Willow like, was an option. And I've talked to uh, never like senior leadership of some of those ownership groups, but some of the, the kind of the low entry guys that were like, oh, this is going to work, this is going to work. And then it, it doesn't pan out. So um, I always wonder, was there, you still had to compete against AEG to get the bid. And was there ever a doubt or was there ever a concern about losing that? I mean, there must've been some, I mean, AEG is this big conglomerate that, that has a, a resume. It, it happens to include Tim on it as well. But um, was there ever a doubt that you would beat, beat them in the bid? Oh, sure. You know, I, you know, it, it, it really, end of the day, we didn't control who, who the city and the, in the, there was basically a committee, if you will, that also advised the city as well, although it was ultimately the, the city's decision. Um, so, you know, when, when you're dealing with a, with a governmental agency like that, you really can't have any sort of sense of assurance. But what we did know was that we had, you know, in Tim, the, the guy who, you know, I, I think he may have undersold a little bit of that, John. I mean, he really built AEG um, in terms of the leadership and, and development of that organization. Um, you know, that was really a lot of his, his efforts um, to build that company into what it was. So he sort of had the playbook. You know, it's like, you know, we weren't AEG, but we, we, we basically had the head coach um, uh, that, that put together that organization. And so um, with that, we were able to build a team around us. And Tim, you know, went out and signed up Populous, um, 
who was the organization that built all of those arenas for AEG. You know, he sort of enlisted them on our side, if you will, and, and the development company Icon, CAA Icon. And so he basically um, put together a group of, of uh, organizations on our side that, in effect, tilted the balance of power to even. You know, in other words, I, I think that we would have been up against it had we not been able to recruit a lot of those organizations. And then he went out and, you know, signed up Live Nation. Again, another, you know, behemoth in the industry to, to be a partner of ours. So Tim went out and, and very strategically enlisted allies um, that, that leveled the playing field. And then it really was uh, a, a situation where it came down to ultimately, I, in my opinion, it came down to two major factors. One, the design of the building. Uh, and to the financing. And for whatever reason, AEG uh, proposal included public, uh, some form of public financing in terms of bonds. Now, you know, it wasn't a, a bad idea in the sense that, you know, municipal bonds are obviously cheaper money and the city potentially had the ability to do that. Uh, and it wouldn't have cost them anything other than, than some of their bonding capacity. But the city was really explicit in saying they did not want to provide any funding um, public funding at all, including that type of bonding. So when they asked for that, I think that that obviously put them in a in a tough spot. But, and then the other part of it, again, as I mentioned, is the design piece where populace, to your point, John, they sort of solved the puzzle. And it wasn't an inexpensive solve, as we've learned, um, but by digging down and out and in effect building a brand new arena under the existing uh, footprint, they were able to center an ice rink under a square. I mean, and if you think about it, Key Arena was a square and hockey is a rectangle. Uh, you know, very few people that aren't in the world of hockey, they sort of think of basketball and hockey in a similar way. But as we all know, a basketball a hockey rink is almost, well, it is, it's over twice as long as a basketball court, you know, 205 feet. So it's really a rectangular building. And a basketball building like Key Arena, you can almost play in a square. Uh, so this idea that you somehow have to get a rectangle underneath a square structure was the challenge. And Populous solved that by going down and out. And frankly, the AEG design, um, and I and I think what it was, was I think they first, and I, I, you know, you know, AEG should speak for themselves here as to what they did. But in looking at their design, clearly, they were trying to find a, what I would say, a less costly um, solution, because they did not, um, their, their design was a bit of a offset design, which would have been less expensive to build, but it would not have been um, nearly as attractive a building or, or functional building, in my opinion. And so I think the city saw that and looked at that and said, okay, wait a minute, we've got we've got an, an offer here that, that's 100% privately financed, and it's also got a really attractive uh, and functional design. Um, ultimately, I think that's what made, made this decision um, for the city to, to go with OBG. So funny story about Tim you know, because I've been at this a while. And when he was at Maple Leaf Sports Enter Entertainment, he's, he spoke very fondly of Seattle. And so when he left MLSE, I was, I was really disappointed because he was this board of governors that was very influential. And so I'm like, oh, we're losing this ally. That's how I viewed that, that his departure from MLSE. <laughs> uh, lo and behold, he's the one that delivers hockey here. So I, I always <laughs> think about that moment. I was like bummed when he, when he announced he was leaving, right? So uh, funny right. side story. So once you get the bid, you still have to go through the the city process and negotiate with the city. Uh, I'm sure you're, you you had a lot of confidence at that point, but was there a, a big milestone that you cleared or a moment where you thought, okay, I can breathe a little easier as far as in the city process? Well, clearly both both 
organization, both, you know, OVG and, and the people that we were talking to at the city, you know, the city, the department of economic development, Brian Surratt, uh, the mayor's office, uh, the people, you know, that, uh, Ben Noble and, and the people at the city of Seattle desperately wanted an arena solution. Let's be really clear here. I know people have, have often said that our city, you know, isn't, isn't, uh, making good decisions at that level. But I can tell you that that from the very day that they put together this RFP process, their whole goal was to get an arena, 100% privately financed arena built in the city. So when, you know, they had two, two what I would call legitimate proposals, one from AEG, one from OVG, um, the die was kind of cast in the sense that they now had a path to getting a privately financed arena. So when then we went into a negotiation for the letter of intent, because again, we just, once we had the RFP, then we actually had to get an LOI and, or excuse me, a letter of agreement LOA um, in, in place. Both parties wanted to get to a deal. And when you have a situation like that, where both are, both parties are as motivated as we were, we really moved through the process in a fairly uh, a steady way. Now, you know, there were some challenging and difficult negotiations and the city was was very, very strident and adamant in, in making sure that they protected the taxpayers. And they did. Um, but we, we got to a deal in, I don't know, I want to say about five months, six months. We started in, I think, somewhere around May of 2017. And by December, we had signed uh, an LOA, which you know, it's pretty incredible when you think about it to to get to a, a an agreement in that period of time. Uh, and, and a lot of that was we were pressing for a 2020 start. Uh, and so we knew that we had to really get rolling on this thing. Um, but in short answer to your question, John, is there was not any one moment in time. It was a process. But we, we knew from from early on that that we, we could get there because both parties wanted to get there. What about the uh, the roof? Was there ever a, a doubt from I mean, I, I don't think that you were the one that was necessarily deciding like how to do it. But um, did you ever question that whole idea of of building this thing underneath an existing I don't know, what do they call it? A 40 million ton roof or something like that, right? Like it is a it is an yeah. absurd decision, right? Like this is the this is the project that we're gonna go with is the one that's under this existing roof that seems like it should frankly fall down yeah. if we try to do this. Well, I, I will say it this way, Darren. The city was very clear in their in their RFP request that the roof um, remain. Right. So so our goal initially was to see if we could come up with a design and a solution that would retain the roof. And of course, AEG was under the same uh, limitation. Mm -hmm. Now, as our as our design engineering firms were doing this, they were certainly sort of looking at, hey, what if we can't like, you know, there there would have been a uh, I guess at some point there would have been a reckoning where we would have gone back to the city and said, this simply can't be done. Uh, or, or the the cost of doing it is so so exorbitant that that it just would never make any sense to do it this way. And then we would have had to have that difficult discussion with the city about whether the roof would have to come down, and, and you know we'd have to build build a new building there. But we never got to that point because you know as I mentioned, uh, you know we and AEG as well, although theirs was an offset design, but we we found a solution that that. Um, could support that roof structure. So sure, it was looked at as a fallback, if you will, but we never really got to to a design um, plan that really involved not having the roof because 
you know, we, we'd solve for it. Yeah. And so we, we, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about all the city council meetings that you guys had to go through. And the three of us all showed up at a lot of those. And there were also a lot of hockey fans there. It seems like everyone I went to, there were guys, people wearing different jerseys and how, how big of a role or how important was it? You think that those folks came out and to take part and, and witness what was going on at the city council? Uh, Andy, you know, it, it was absolutely uh, enormous for us because, you know, up until that time, the hockey community really had not um, showed itself. You know, even as, you know, as John is mentioning through all of these other iterations of, um, you know, potentially getting a building and a hockey team, um, you know, there really, it was really a fairly underground movement. I think it was probably John and a few friends, <laughs> you know, um, I know I can tell you, I certainly hadn't heard of John before that. Um, but you know, it's one of those situations where when we finally decided that, that, you know, this was going to be uh, a reality and that we were going to, to lead with a hockey franchise, it was absolutely essential that our city council see that, that there was passion in the community for this. Because as you know, um, our elected officials obviously are representing their communities and had, they looked out in an audience and not seen anybody out there that, that, that cared about hockey, it would have been a much more difficult challenge and a vote for us. So it was absolutely essential that, that we fill that chamber with, with people wearing their sweaters and youth and adults and all these 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 people that let them know that that hockey in fact was important to this community and and of course you know we've, we've seen just it's like an iceberg you know it's it's really amazing <laughs> to me to think that at that city council meeting you know we had the little tip of the iceberg you know there's you know 15 or 20 hockey fans there and they were consistent and they were there every time to fill the chamber and below the surface of that you know there's these tens of thousands of of fans that we saw through this deposit process and what have you. Uh, so it really is incredible to think that that those 15 or 20 folks that were showing up at those meetings really were the representative body, if you will, of this much larger uh, hockey community in the city. And I could do nothing but take my hat off to, to all of you on this call, because I know all three of you were part of that. Um, but you guys should be super proud because in effect, you were the proxy for all of these hockey fans and, and are, are really part of the, the, the reason why we, we are where we are here today is because you guys took the time to come to those meetings, to stand there, spend the hours in the council chambers uh, and represent your sport. Well, well speaking of the fans, uh, I, I know uh, the deposit that day was a big day for your franchise. Uh, I'm, I'm sure leading up to that, the, the months leading up to that, the office, you guys were making predictions about when you would hit your target. What was your prediction for that day? Well, I don't know if you've been in the presentation center, but we actually had a uh, uh, a little picture up on the wall of the piece of paper where we all wrote down our, our <laughs> predictions at the time. There were, I think, seven of us in the room, uh, and then we all had written down how, how many days we thought it would take to, to get to our 10,000 deposits. The problem was we all had some inside information in the sense that, so if, I don't know if you recall, but we had a... Uh, uh, we had a website up that was allowing people to write in, if you will, and, and ask questions and FAQ and things like that. And, and so this thing was blowing up. Uh, you know, we, our, our inbounds uh, on, this, on this website that we had had, I think we had 10 or 12,000 hits on it a week out, you know, which were proactive. These were people like actively seeking this domain name and, and lobbying in and saying, when is the on sale? I want to be sure I got it. Da, 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 da. So th we knew that there was this, this bubble building behind our, our launch. 
and we knew it was sizable. So all of us were hedging a little bit like, okay, this is going to be really good. We, we knew that. I mean, anybody that tells you that, that they didn't think this was going to happen in some what I'll call exciting way, I think is probably not being 100% forthright. But we didn't know how big, right? And, and, and you know, at some point you're still so, so you know, long story short, we're all kind of like, I think I predicted two days because I was hedging. I'm like, you know, and there's some people were a week, <laughs> 10 days who didn't know. So there were people in the room that didn't have that, that data and they were out, you know, 14 days. Keep in mind, it took Vegas six months. Yeah to get to that number. So, so that was our, that was, and this, and the NHL, I think it told us, look, we, we really want you guys to do this in three or less. That would be the right, you know, uh, uh, give us confidence. This is the right market. So people were sort of hedging against that. Right. And, and, and so when some of us were putting down two days, six days, seven days, that was pretty aggressive. That felt like, <laughs> you know, okay, I'm kind of going out on a limb here. And when I say two days, cause that's, that's pretty ridiculous to think about. Well, in hindsight, you know, of course, it now may, it seems absurd that, that we would even said two days because it was two minutes. You know, I mean, it was really that. So but but we did have and we did have an inkling that there was this this bubble building behind our launch that was was had a smile on our face. I, we, I think we had a lot of confidence that uh, it was going to be a good day. So, so nobody so, picked 12 minutes then, huh? <laughs> or whatever it was. No, there was no, there were no 12 minutes. <laughs> I, I do believe that, that I do believe, however, that Tim, no surprise, I think Tim had the lowest uh, prediction. I don't quite recall what it was, but, but Tim being the, the optimist <laughs> that he is, I think he had, he had, a uh, he did have something very, very tight uh, in the sense that I think he, he knew for sure that uh, this was going to be a, a wild success. You know, I think, though, based on prices Right rules, technically everyone is still over, so even he loses in that case. So. <laughs> I think, yeah, you know what, Darren, I, I think you're right. I, I, Let him know that. I have, the, guy that w- the guy that would have written down two minutes uh, in that room that day, would have, would have, I'm not quite sure what the reaction would have been when, when uh, if somebody had scribbled down, you know, two minutes or eight minutes or 12 minutes or whatever, ultimately the, you know, the, the minutes were when we hit that 10,000 number. But uh, I do recall John Barr panicking on that day. Yeah. It may have been the I'll longest day it. of his life, actually. Yeah. I think the night before was worse than the actual day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it was, it was worse because John was watching his uh, browser spin as he was watching the numbers grow uh, on his, his, his list. So uh, I think uh, it was a truly long day for John Barr. Oh yeah. So I was actually at the angry beaver the night before the uh, ticket drive. And you know, that's where Jerry showed up and Tim showed up after you'd been doing yeah. like the road show kind of thing. Um, and I asked him, I'm like, Hey, what, what's your number in the office pool? Like he's the only person I asked. And he says to me very confidently, and I know he's like on the aggressive side, he's like two hours. That's what he said. And he was clearly the low end of that. So uh, I always yeah. think about that moment. I'm like, and I was like feeling good because he just told me two hours. Great. Yeah. Right. I was worried about hitting the number. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and again, like I say, we, we had all of this. We, we, you know, Tim, Tim had some information that, that, you know, we've seen all this demand coming in on our, our website. So um, he had some inside information there. Yeah. So obviously the work didn't stop there. Um, you had to kind of find a location for the practice facility. And I've always wanted to know, you know, without giving too many specifics, but how's that process like? Do you just uh, contact a, a commercial real estate broker and say, we need X amount of land to do this, this, and this, and it needs to be within, you know, 10 miles of Key Arena or, or, or 
uh, Seattle Center? Uh, so, John, it's a little of both. Um, so I, I led that that search for our organization. And, it, you know, the, the acreage you're looking for, particularly with parking, you know, because the situation is the further out you get, the more parking you need, right? Because once you once you end up in a suburban location, if you will, the only way you can get to it is by car. Uh, and so you need to have, you know, hundreds of parking spaces if you're going to be able to build multiple sheets um, for something like that. So at the end of the day, you can actually find the site yourself. I mean, when you start to look at it that way of, okay, look, I need, you know, I need seven acres, six acres of land type of thing. Pretty quickly, you can sort of figure out what may or may not be available. And then um, we also did contact some commercial brokers to see if there were any commercial spaces that could be repurposed because ultimately there was raw land in this, in this, uh, in King County obviously is, is very precious. So you really then had to start look at, at existing facilities that could be repurposed into, into hockey rinks. And that's where the commercial real estate people came in uh, and having conversations with them. But, you know, we were looking at, at, public land. We were looking at, you know, place communities that, that could potentially donate the dirt because of course that would have made, made things less expensive for us. Uh, if we could have created a public private partnership, we investigated a whole bunch of things like that. And, uh, and uh, I, I'll, I'll repeat this and maybe you've heard this story, but it's actually sort of interesting. So I was actually uh, on a call laying out all of our options uh, and, you know, sort of explaining what, what I thought those were. And uh, one of our owners, um, Len Potter, just asked what, what a kind of an off the cuff question. He said, "So he goes, what about any? What about all these malls that you know? You know, obviously these malls are, are struggling now. Are, are there any old malls around that we could look at? You know, and I think he may have been thinking about you know an old J.C. Penney building or something that we could sort of renovate and what have you. And I and I said, well, you know." There's one up at you know in Northgate that's in a in into in a major redevelopment mode and, and he said well who owns that and and I said well I believe it's Simon Properties and and he said well I so happen to uh, to have a relationship with David Simon um, let me call him and just see what what they're thinking you know and it's really it was kind of like one of these casual throwaway conversations like yeah okay sure you know, that that's fine there's a small <laughs> there that they've, they're developing into a you know office residential you know multi-use deal. Uh, and, you know, he happened to have a relationship with, with the company that's doing it, but he calls and literally, I think it may have been that day. And it wasn't that day. It was the next day. Um, Len calls back and he says, Hey, I talked to David and they're absolutely interested in, in, in having a conversation about us developing our rinks there. And literally by, by Friday, like three days later, I'm in a meeting with, with, uh, the executives from Simon and they're showing us their master plan and where we could <laughs> fit in. And they'd already drawn where it could fit <laughs> and off and running we were. So, so in some ways it was serendipity, you know, that, that we happened to have Len on the call and we had this conversation and he asked that question because um, in, in, in all honesty, uh, I had not looked at Northgate. Um, you know, they had a development plan. It wasn't, you know, they, they, they truly had to redo their plan um, to accommodate us. It was, so it wasn't like they had this big open space and said, hey, this is a perfect place to put three yeah. ranks in your, your headquarters. Um, to their credit, they, they redeveloped the, their master plan to allow us to fit into it. Uh, the other little nuance there that people um, to understand, which is pretty incredible, is they were way down the road on their plan. They, I think this was in the summer of 2018, I believe. And they were submitting their final 
plan in, in October. Uh, they had been working on this for years. As you guys know, in Seattle, it's very difficult to develop anything. It takes a long time to get your permits and get through all of your public comment periods and all those sorts of things. And they were they were at, I, really at the doorstep. I, I sort of say like the 11th hour of the 12-hour period is, is where they were in their planning and permitting process. And, and they'd gone through all the, the trap lines and what have you. And we stepped in at the and so we basically slipped our design in at the 11th hour and then they they were still able to get their approvals at, on their same time frame so we skipped over probably a year and a half or two years of permitting and development work um, in doing that so we couldn't have done it i mean we would not have three rinks ready in the summer and fall of 2021 in the city of seattle uh, under any scenario other than that uh, of having had a, a plan already baked and, and in effect just ready to put it in the oven uh, had we not. So so if we had gone out and, and just decided that we were going to do this at Northgate and Northgate was operating in their you know mall condition, whatever, we'd probably be looking at the 2023, something like that, before we'd actually been able to finish a building wow. because uh, it would have taken years to get through that process. So the idea that we plugged in at that point in their program to be able to immediately start our design uh, and, and get moving so that we could open our building uh, when we are is is really, uh, you know, another real stroke of good luck uh, and good fortune for us. Never knew that. Uh, incredible. Just slap a couple ice rinks in there for yeah. us, will you? <laughs> can, can you just plug this in? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and, and I think Todd has probably said this to you, but he is super uh, bullish about this idea and, and credit to him and to our owners for making a huge bet. Um, this is not an inexpensive venture to build three rinks in the city of Seattle. There, there are no rinks, as you guys know, in the city of Seattle right now, not a single rink in the city limits. So to build three sheets uh, plus our headquarters in this location, which is, you know, in the city of Seattle, as you can imagine, is, is not an inexpensive uh, venture by any means. Uh, and yet it's something we really felt we needed to do for two reasons. One, we are based in Seattle and this is our home. And two, we really did need to to make a statement that we are going to create a home for hockey uh, in the city of Seattle. And, and so we felt like this was the right thing to do. And of course, now um, the access that it's going to provide, the fact that it's on a light rail line, the hope that we can reach our underserved communities with these rinks and we can build a really robust program around it. It's just, we've been able to dream. I guess the, odd, the bottom line is because we chose this location, it's allowed us to dream about how we can make this building something so much more than than just just hockey rinks or our headquarters um and had we been out in the suburbs uh you know and and what have you would have definitely been more challenging to be able to do the things that we plan to do here so the last 60 days have been pretty epic as far as the uh climate pledge arena uh deal and then obviously naming the name was a big thing um like what's ahead now i mean i you still have to finish obviously the practice facility and then um you know i'm i'm specifically wondering about the TV deal and the nature of that, because now we have a lot of fans asking about that. Well, uh, we have really bright minds working on that right now. Todd and uh, uh, Victor DeBonis are, are playing the lead on that in our organization. And I would just simply say that it, it, everything's on the table. Um, you know, they're looking at, at, you know, in this day and age, um, you know, there's, there's lots of different ways to uh, send signal. And uh, they're looking at every uh, every option. Um, you know, the the beauty of us being new and and being able to come at this as a day one organization is that we can look at it doing things differently. So, um, you know, at this point, John, I would simply say that that it's been exciting to look at all the different ways that we can potentially carry our games 
uh, to our fan base um, across the spectrum. So it'll it'll be whatever we do. I, I think our fans will be happy. But um, we're we're looking at every every type of uh, method. All right. So one last question for you here, Lance. Uh, obviously, you've been working in sports or some form of sports entertainment for a long time. And for those people out there that want to work in sports, what's your advice for them? Darren, I would say that that needless to say, these jobs are cherished because there there aren't that many of them. And, and I always say people don't leave them because they are rewarding jobs. Um, and so it's sort of a, you know, a double whammy of there are few of them and they don't turn over very often. Um, so with that being said, I, I think that that I always say the best thing you can do is go become um, absolutely skilled at whatever it is your, your trade is, whether it be being an attorney or uh, marketing or communication, whatever it might be. If you look at our front office right now, I sort of example of, of just using the Kraken, for example, and you look at the, the VPs that, that populate our front office organization, very, very few of them came from hockey. I mean, you know, on the hockey side, clearly they will, but like our community person, Mari Harita, um, led arts fund for, for many, many years. And, you know, um, Katie Townsend, you know, our, our uh, VP of communication came from the BBC. And, and so I guess the, the short answer is, is you have to go become an expert in your field and, and become highly skilled at what you do. And then you try to translate it over into sports. I, I think so often so many people want to start in sports, right? It's like, I, I you know, I want to, I want a job, and they, you know, they're 23, 24 years old, what have you. And, and they come right out of college and they want to get a job with a professional sports team. And, you know, the, the teams typically don't have to hire people without experience, right? I mean, we're, we're in an enviable position of being able to hire people that have actually gone out and, and uh, uh, achieved a, a certain level of skill to be able to do these jobs. And so um, that's a long answer, but, but short, short, I would just say, go out and become a master of your craft first and then you, you figure out how to apply and get into these organizations to do what you do best um, it's really the, the right way to do it there's no shortcuts if you will to sort of getting a job there as a young person and working your way up there's obviously there's examples of that but that's a tough road mm-hmm. well, that's good advice this has been a very enlightening uh, conversation so thank you Lance for uh, joining us this morning I think I've learned a lot and I think our, our listeners likely have as well so really appreciate your time well, again, I just want to thank you guys for, for your passion for, for the sport of hockey because, uh, as we all know, this doesn't happen without people who, who, who don't care. And you guys obviously care deeply about the sport. I mean, you're doing this podcast, which is you know proof positive of that. Uh, but it's because of guys like you and, and, and people you guys are, are part of. That organization is really the lifeblood of how this whole thing came to be together. And, and I, I just kudos to all of you guys for your passion and your spirit for this game. And, and I honestly, on opening night, I want to find all of you guys because <laughs> I want to feel your emotion because I know you guys are going to feel me feeling it much stronger than even I am because it's in your blood. Um, and I I'm, truly want to find you guys because I want to, I want to experience what you guys are experiencing on that opening night. Cause it's really going to be spectacular. All right. Thank you again to Lance Lopes for joining us. I thought that was a, a very interesting interview. His story about how Northgate came together uh, I found pretty fascinating personally. So, but I'm glad we got him on because he's he's was such a key piece in getting the arena done, um, which ultimately led to the franchise coming here um, or the NHL expanding mm-hmm. here. He was it. He was the only person for a long time. Um, obviously, Tim Lewicki, um, which he mentioned a bit, had a lot to do with it. And between those two guys, like 
there's probably nobody bigger to make this happen. And then he also mentioned there was participation from the from the city and, and people that wanted to kind of figure a way to make it work. Um, so it's not just all those two guys, but there was there was people on the city side as well. But I, you know, obviously I had a front row to that and it was uh, pretty amazing. And I mean, I've got stories. So someday find me at the game. Uh, it just, just incredible because there was never a time where I thought it was guaranteed. I mean, these guys were certainly more confident than I ever was about yeah. not just the arena, but, but getting a franchise too. Um, obviously they'd been talking to the league, but they didn't share that with me. It's been, uh, there was a lot of fun to do that with Lance and Lance's one thing about real quick, uh, Winnemucca, Nevada is, so I went to school at university of Nevada and I knew a bunch of people from Winnemucca, uh, because that's where they would go to college. And so, and they, they are like the greatest people in the world. They were so nice, and I call them small town northern Nevada because they were just so nice and humble people. And so when I met Lance, I'm like, oh, this is pretty cool. He's from he's from Winnemucca, meaning he's a good person. So that's a little side story on that Winnemucca business. Well, I thought it was cool having him on just because he's a guy that I you know that you don't he doesn't get as much publicity as some of the other. He's not out no. in front of the story a lot, but he, like you said, he did have a big role and, and I loved hearing some of the behind the scenes stuff on, on the whole process that we went through. Yeah. Thank you, Lance. Once again, we now move on to our segments and our first segment is bad boys. Rod Brindamore fined $25,000 for his comments about some officiating. What was he so upset about Andy? Uh, I believe it was game two, one or two of the Boston series. There was a, a goal that, that, that Boston scored. It looked like maybe there was a hand pass or that the, the goalie, his goalie had the puck under control and it was dug out. And he claims that the referees told him it's either going to be goalie interference or a hand pass. Which one do you want to uh, review? And he said, we well, got to tell me what the call is on the ice. And they wouldn't tell him. So he reviewed the hand pass. They reviewed it and said, well, actually it was the, the Boston player batted it to the goalie who had possession, but it can't be goalie interference now because he didn't, he didn't challenge that. That's what he's claiming happened. So he was pretty upset and, and kind of said how the league was a joke and <laughs> it went off in, in a press conference and he's going to pay for it. Yeah. Well, is he though? I don't know because the Carolines. Carolines? I think Darren meant Hurricanes. Oopsie daisy. Tweeted out a <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, picture of a check with check. Tom Dundon's signature on it and it just said, In Rod, we trust. Um, you see what the little memo said though? It said like quick pay equals best friends or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it made me, I mean, I question if the check is real. Now, obviously, if you're tweeting out to your thousands and thousands of followers uh, a picture of a check, you're probably going to eliminate the account number at the bottom. But, True. you know, I, it makes you wonder, was it a real check if they if they don't include an account number when they send it to the, uh, who knows? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it looked a little fishy to me. That's all I'm saying. But um, nonetheless, pretty good PR move there by the Hurricanes, to send that out. Yep. By the way, have you guys seen the picture of Rod the Bod playing Frisbee without his shirt uh, yeah. on? Because that, That's been all over the place. <laughs> whoa, yikes. Uh, he really is Rod the Bod. It is, yes. uh, it is not just a rumor. Uh, quite impressive. Well, that was from a little video they, they did of the, what the Hurricanes were doing in their off day, and it was pretty funny because some of the Hurricane players were like, yeah, you don't want to go near him without a shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> To look bad. Which, like, from a you know twenty-something player, right? <laughs> NHL player, I think yeah. Rod's in his fifties, isn't he? So, um, yep. I think we're all doing it wrong. But uh, another bad boys, Max Pacioretty was fined twenty-five hundred dollars. Now, compared to the twenty-five thousand dollars that Brindamore was <laughs> was charged, this is you know chump change. Twenty-five hundred dollars right. for slashing Alex DeBrinket at the end of Game Four in their series. Uh, it was a pretty good slash on the hands, but I don't know twenty-five hundred bucks. I mean, that's 
That's like less than a slap on the wrist for a guy. Apparently, like Max apparently, a slash of the hands isn't as bad as criticizing the officials. And apparently not. Not even close. It's exactly ten <laughs> percent as bad. I, I believe Max Pacioretty makes a lot more than Rob Rendemore. Probably. So percentage-wise, it's even worse. So yeah, crazy. He won't do that again. And our final bad boys, Blake Como hit his stick against the glass and broke it. So that's pretty much it. It didn't get yeah. fine. I love the uh, I love the tweet though that that NBC Sports said, "Ah, we found the culprit." Blake Como yeah. shattered the glass. <laughs> yeah, like we see you. <laughs> yeah. uh, we now move on to our weekly one timers. The QMJHL is sticking to an October start date and is planning to somehow play without fans. Uh, Andy, mm-hmm. as our local WHL correspondent and also our Northgate correspondent, which is unrelated in this instance, <laughs> but uh, our WHL correspondent, how do they plan to do this? I mean, I know that uh, obviously the WHL is very much gate driven. I imagine the same for the Q. Mm-hmm. So how do they think that they're going to be able to pull this off? Do you have any idea? I don't. This was a real head scratcher. So. What they said is that they're going to play uh, without fans in Quebec. Now, they do have some teams in the Maritime provinces, and that's to be determined. So some of the speculation is that they may have ha- got some government subsidy from the Quebec province, and that's why they, that's how they can afford to do that. Um, that was one head-scratcher. The other is that they're starting – the other CHL leagues, the OHL and the WHL, are planning on starting December. So the Q would have a two-month head start, so their season would end two months – in theory, earlier, um, and then they would have to wait around for Memorial Cup. So it's very, it was very strange. The CHL hired a, a commissioner we talked about a year ago, to, uh, supposedly to get everybody under the same umbrella and, and on the same page. This seems to fly in the face of all that, that they're going to start two months earlier. At least that's their plan. Hmm. Fascinating decision. Uh, our mm-hmm. next weekly one-timer. Whoops. Oscar Lindblom of the Flyers has been practicing with his team, which uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, obviously, we know that he was diagnosed with cancer. He's apparently beaten it. He's back with the team, and he's you know he's in the bubble. He's actually practicing with the squad. So, um, do we expect that he's actually going to play if Philadelphia makes a run? They do uh, after their game the other day. So, uh, like like a lot of their players that were at their press conference talked about how they're they're hoping to see him on the ice in a game uh, if they advance. Yeah, Vigneault said there's there's a chance of a comeback. I I think they're downplaying it a bit um but it, it would require the flyers to win a couple rounds mm-hmm. so you got to imagine like coming back to that that level of intensity not that he's putting himself really at danger other than he's just been probably hasn't been able to work out uh, i did see a great video of them all you know slapping their sticks for him at the during the the circle stretch at practice so um really cool stuff and um, he continues to be an inspiring story there in philadelphia uh, our final weekly one-timer Whoops. John Robleski, the friend of the pod that we interviewed at the NHL draft last year. It's a bit of a deep cut, but uh, for <laughs> longtime listeners, it's a it's a treat for you. Uh, he actually is moving on from being the head coach of the U.S. National Team Development Program, and he's now going to be the head coach of the Ontario Reign in the AHL. So how do you like that? Maybe a future NHL coach. He's continuing to work his way up the ranks. Uh, funny thing there is Alex Turcott was drafted by the LA Kings. He was also on uh, John Robleski's team. Uh, two years ago. So so he'll be end up coaching him, assuming uh, he doesn't play, he doesn't make the big squad, but he should be playing in the AHL. And that wraps up our weekly one-timers. Whoops. We close the sh- that was a weird one timer. We close the show with our <laughs> tweets of the week. Uh, first, a quick update. My tweet of the week last week about the uh, picture of David Amber, right, where it had mm-hmm. Elliot Friedman's beard, which by the way has been shaven. Shaven. Chauvin. Yeah, I saw that today. Yeah. Chauvin. Uh, it is gone. Uh, and then Brian Burke's hair. Uh, that picture was actually done by Generation X-Wing. 
as the Twitter handle. Uh, it's a Michael of some sort, and Michael apparently is a listener, so thought that was kind of cool. cool. He pointed out to me that he had done it for uh, David Amber, and uh, and David Amber used it, so fun stuff. Uh, <laughs> anyway, shout out to Generation X-Wing. John, what's your tweet of the week for this week? Somewhat of a two-parter. I don't okay. know if you know the name Mike Milbury. Yeah, we may have mentioned him <laughs> earlier. Mm-hmm. In classic Mike Milbury form, he tweets after the five overtimes. It's a picture of CN Tower in Toronto, and it says... On another worldly night, Space Needle is an appropriate backdrop. Insane Columbus TV game. God bless both teams for a great effort, even though I believe we should end up end these games sooner via three versus three or shootout after a time. What do you think? People didn't Oof. like him calling CN Tower the Space Needle. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this tweet. I think before we go any further, and this isn't even really your tweet of the week because I know where you're going with this, um, but there's a lot of reaction to it. Now, if you open up the actual picture that he tweeted, first of all, it's blurry as hell. Like, I, I don't know. Is he like <laughs> jogging? Um, I don't know what's going on here, right? It's just, it's an awful, awful picture. Uh there's so many like bad takes in there, right? The CN mm-hmm. Tower being called Space Needle, um, and even like his argument about ending the. Although I, I mean, he may kind of have a point because, well, that's he, compl- he complained about that during day. the game too. He complained yeah, but about it's that. just like, dude, like, what are you, what are you doing here? It's it's almost yeah. like he was intentionally <laughs> coming up with a bad tweet here because he knew yeah. like how bad it was and how people were going to react to it, but. Um, anyway, carry on, John. I'm sorry to hijack your tweet of the week. That's okay. I mean, there was a lot that went around to this tweet, and I feel like we'll hear about it a little bit more before the show is through. But uh, Thomas Drance then retweeted it or quote tweeted it and said, such a stupid tweet. Everyone knows the Space Needle is in Edmonton. <laughs> That's a throwback to Edmonton trying to, to campaign for the bubble. Uh, and my tweet of the week is in the same vein. So uh, Milbury's tweet, right? And then it's retweeted by the official Space Needle account at space underscore needle. And it has a facepalm emoji. It says, this is awkward. At real Mike Milbury, the Space Needle is definitely in Seattle, home of the Seattle Kraken, looming over at Climate Arena. And since you ask, I'd support three versus three after the first overtime. <laughs> Hashtag release the Kraken. Uh, so that, that that was pretty good. And actually, NHL Seattle, or I guess the Kraken now, they had a pretty funny tweet as well, where it was just like, oh, who's going to tell him? And then Space mm-hmm. Needle responded to it and was just like, I got this. <laughs> that was great. So uh, a lot of people jumping on Mike Milbury, which uh, you love to see it. So Andy, your tweet of the week. So my tweet of the week. Uh, so all the post-game availability in the, in, this, in the bubble has been via Zoom, and it's led to some inter- entertaining moments. Uh, and in that vein, my tweet of the week comes from Ryan Clark, who covers the Colorado Avalanche for the Athletic, and mm-hmm. who we mentioned, who, who was mentioned in our last episode, is uh, you know he wrote a story about Everett uh, Fitzhugh, and that's what that's what got the you know the ball rolling on him coming to Seattle. But he tweeted out uh, you know after an Avalanche game, he says reporter just asked Nazem Kadri, who was not at the podium, to speak about his first goal. Eric Johnson said Nazem's not here, but I'm sure he feels pretty good. <laughs> which I got a kick out of. <laughs> good stuff. Very good yeah. stuff. That wraps up episode 100. How do you like it? We've done 100 episodes of this silly little show. Thanks again to Lance Lopes for coming on the show. I think, uh, again, very interesting interview, and it was really, really great to, to have you on. Please do subscribe on Stitcher, subscribe on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, leave your five-star review on iTunes, and we'll read it for you on the next episode, just like Marshall XG did. <laughs> uh, we'll talk to you all very soon. Cheers. Better than this. When you only got a hundred years to live